Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we've got Blake Selby with Selby Enterprises. He flew in from Davenport, Iowa to talk about how he built a 300 plus unit portfolio and turned that into $2 million liquid and the lessons he learned along the way to avoid getting scammed when you're lending. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, sales trainer for some of the top wholesalers in the country and I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. Question I get all the time is how to become one of the 100 millionaires. The information on this podcast alone is enough for you to become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you will take consistent action, you will become one. If you want to get there faster, send me a DM on Instagram and we'll see if we can help you. If you get value out of the show today, please tag a friend below. Share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Blake to answer. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. So first question is, what got you into real estate? Yeah, so... Short answer is I just didn't see another path. And so I think it's always been in my blood. Uh, my great grandfather owned a Chevrolet dealership. Uh, my grandfather was the head real estate buyer from Ford Motor Company, all of it. And, uh, and then my father was in business as well. So it's just kind of always been in my blood. I knew I needed to do something like that. So the head buyer yep. for Ford Motor Company. Yep. Global real estate buyer. Global, not even national. Yep. Global. Yep. All right. Maybe uh, just to help enlighten everybody else. Can you explain what it means to be a buyer? Because I don't think everyone knows what a buyer is. So he would negotiate the any dealership's opening for Ford. He would source the properties and things like that. And then he had his own, you know, real estate uh, empire as well. So. so he would go and negotiate on behalf of Ford. Correct. And then Ford would sell that to the dealership? I think that they would either sell it to the dealership. I'm not sure exactly what the disposition process yeah. was for that, but I know that he was the person who would identify the properties. Or did they, like, they maybe had a McDonald's model where like they just buy the land, put a McDonald's on it, and then just lease it to you. That would be a good model. I'm not sure if that's what they did. but Okay. Yeah. All right. And then you said that your father was also in the real estate or, uh, he, or in the industry. So what he's did he in do? business. So my, my father's in business. He uh, did something completely different than real estate. He did uh, like a piano uh, company, grand pianos, deliveries, sales, things like that. So, so is that more of the entrepreneurial component? I think so. That's in okay, my So blood. it wasn't real estate that was in your blood. No. It was the entrepreneurial right. spirit was in your blood. Exactly. Okay. So then you go to college? I did. I graduated from Michigan State uh, University and got a degree in something completely unrelated. So uh, a good degree in kinesiology, which is a si essentially an exercise science. Mm -hmm. So then straight out of college, I went and opened up a gym, which I thought was a good idea oh, at the so, time. Okay, so you got your degree in kinesiology. <laughs> right. And then you immediately opened a gym. Opened a gym, yep. A lease, I imagine. Yep. Who approved the lease? <laughs> yeah, I got really, uh, you know, fortunate to have met a lot of good people uh, okay. in Iowa. So I moved uh, kind of here for that opportunity and uh, opened up the gym and, you know, did really well with it. Um, but I could kind of see the writing on the wall that the money that was coming from the gym, it was very linear growth. I wasn't going to be able to, I had to be there every day from five in the morning until, mm. you know, whatever time at night to keep that running and um, doing a lot of personal training at the time and things that I was doing in college. And so um, I did that for about three years. Um, and just as things were going, I didn't see another path other than something like a real estate to give me like more of an exponential growth curve um, to where I could actually make some serious money. So when did you, when did you graduate college? Uh, 2012. 2012. And then you, uh, you're from Davenport or you moved nope, there? I'm actually from Michigan. So I, I kind of Figured out this opportunity in Davenport with the gym situation. So you moved to another yep. state yep. to open the gym. Correct. With no... I didn't know a single person. So <laughs> uh, here's what I did. This That's is very... Yeah. 
out there as far as risk. Yeah, it was huge risk. Uh, looking back, I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah, um, for sure. But I actually got a phone book at the time, mm -hmm. and I called every single number in the phone book and wow, offered, that's them, offered them a free personal training session and a free gym membership uh, at the time. And, uh, you know, that's how kind of how I built a business. So. Okay. So you got this gym. Yep. And it's profitable? It was profitable. Yep. Day one. Okay. So profitable from day one. So yep. that's impressive. And the fact that you called the phone book, I mean, that's a lot, a lot of a lot of us wholesalers are doing. Yep. It's more or less for calling. We call it a high equity list, but it's basically you're calling the phone book. And I was 22. I mean, I didn't yeah. know what I was doing. You know, I would just try, you know, just. But clearly you're doing what was working. Sure. So, all right. So you, you open your gym and you said there was a linear growth. Yep. What does that mean? I just got to the point where. I could only train so many clients in a day. I could only teach so many classes in a day. There was only so much space for memberships. And um, I've seen guys try to open more than one gym and they just completely, uh, you know, get too dispersed. They can't, uh, you know, focus hard enough on one. Um, I'm sure there are models that work because there's chains of gyms. Mm -hmm. But at the time I was young, I didn't have the expertise to really franchise out. So I wound up selling it actually. Got it. Okay. So you end up selling your gym and yep. then Made why? Good, good money off it. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Doubled up. Because of the SaaS model, where it's just like people are the current model? Yeah, I mean, the sale of the gym gave me a lump sum mm -hmm. uh, to use. And I actually, it, I don't want to get too into detail, but basically they were tearing down the gym building. Mm -hmm. And so the new uh, buyer of the gym wanted me to source a location for them. There wasn't anything to really rent. So I wound up finding a strip mall that I could only buy. So I used the money from the you know, proceeds from the sale of the gym toward the down payment on the strip mall. And then I figured out, whoa, the strip mall actually makes some money. Like, this is good. Yeah. And uh, the rest was history. I was like, how many of these things can I get? So I kind of started there. Right. But the, I think one of the interesting things about the gym model, right, is that um, it's a lot like we talk about subscription as a service. Right. Or software as a service, whatever. And it's, you got this recurring monthly fee. Right. And the great thing is that you can sell on a multiplier of a, of a recurring fee. And that's what you guys did. Yep. And what's really cool as a gym is that people don't quit because to quit a gym is to imply you're quitting on yourself. Yep. So people just never cancel, except for like when they're the, once in a while they're looking at the credit cards or they change their credit cards. Right. There's a right. big statistic. I can't remember what the number is, but it's the percentage of folks that cannot enter the gym in order for you need to be to be profitable. Mm -hmm. And you know, Planet Fitness is a prime example of that. I'm sure only a small fraction of their members are regulars. Right. No, they. It's, <laughs> It's crazy. Yeah. The gym, the, the gym model. Okay. So you bought this strip mall and yep. then that's what opened your eyes to real estate. It opened my eyes immediately. I was like, wow, I was kind of a rebel without a cause. Cause I had for the first time in my life, a pretty significant cash sum. And I was mm. like, wow. Um, but I had no income. I mean, other than personal training clients and that's not yeah. enough for me. Um, so I was like, wow, I need to, you know, I really need to put some thought into this. This was probably late 2015 at this time. I was 25 years old at the time this happened. So, um, Felt like I was floundering. What am I going to do now? Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided I was, I met with a, a guy at a local bank who happened to be a member of my gym and had seen the growth and all my financials were screwed up. I didn't know, you know, what a P&L was. I didn't have anything. And he said, you know, we, we do in-house loans, which are called portfolio loans. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm going to take a chance on you. Give me a million dollars. The banker gave you a portfolio. dollars. Yep. Line of, uh, line of credit. Straight up, he said, go buy, go pick out a million dollars. Here's a million dollars. Yep. Wire into your account. Yep. Go, go pick make out some work. properties. Yep. Okay, cool. Yep. All right, so you did that. So they were term loans. Yep. So what did you do with a million dollars? So I bought a whole bunch of apartment buildings. Um, I, I think one thing I always did right, even when I didn't know what I was doing, 
is that uh, I would always buy things low. I would always just haggle as much as I could, get the price low, which I'm sure annoyed the, the heck out of people at the time. But here's my little 25-year-old self running around making offers on apartment buildings, some of which I still own. Um, and I just, I saw that as the, as the way. And mm-hmm. then I just kind of kept building off of that until I had over 300 units. And then I was like, holy moly. <laughs> well, and it's awesome you were doing this back in 2015 and yeah. later, like, because it's been a craze really for the last three years. Everyone's getting into apartment investing, apartment investing, and so on. So it's True. been a craze for a while now. Yep. I got lucky so, on the timing. So you started before the craze. Yep. So you were buying things. Like, what kind of cap rates are you, were you buying back, back then? Some of this stuff was probably in the 20s, man. I really? Mean, it was insanity. 20s. I, know, I know fours and fives are happening right now. I mean, yeah, fours I mean, and fives are normal here. Yeah. What is it right now in Iowa? What's the cap rate? Higher. It's, it's going to be higher than that. I don't know what it is exactly. Mm-hmm. It's probably a few digits higher. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, I just remember, uh, you know, picking up entire, you know, I picked up like a 10 plex one time for, God, it was like probably less than 10 a unit, you know? Wow. Yeah. So for the people that are listening, can you explain what a cap rate is? So a cap rate is, uh, it's called the capitalization rate. So it's basically the net operating income divided by the uh, property's cost. Mm-hmm. And so it's, what would you be making on this property if there were no loans on it? You're on the free and clear. Right, right. What is your return on investment? Yep. Yeah. So that's, and cap rates are one of the factors that I use in determining a property's worth. Obviously it goes into the soup that is the mm-hmm. uh, worth determination, but I don't look at any one like statistic and say, oh, this, well, it's, it's capping at a 30 cap. So like, therefore it's an amazing deal. Like, yeah. no, there's other things that have to be looked at, like neighborhood. Area turnover. Yeah. So what was, tell me about the first apartment that you bought. Yeah. So the first apartment was, uh, it's called Selby Manor, believe it or not, because I thought that was a good idea at 25 or whatever. Um, you bought it and yeah. it was named that. You I named it you that. Didn't, you named it. Okay, so. I put it, I put like a, like a total, uh, 25 year old. I put, uh, the letters sell. I still have it. I still own it. Um, I put Selby Manor on the front. It was an orphanage, uh, prior and, you know, okay. converted it into apartments and, uh, just really cleaned it up, made it a lot nicer. And I, I still own that today. I'll probably never sell it. And so, <laughs> what was your first one? Yeah. And it, the Selby Manor. Yeah, if I do sell it, I'm going to get a good price for it. That's for sure. So how did you find that? Um, You know, it was just off market. So everything I bought uh, back in 2015, 2016, it was all off market stuff that I I hardly ever shopped on the MLS for stuff, uh, even back then, which I'm kicking myself now. I probably should have bought everything on the MLS. Um, But, you know, after seeing... uh, after seeing some of the off-market pricing, I was like, okay, I know I need to get stuff way cheaper than the MLS so that I can't screw this up. I'm going to get the prices really low. Mm-hmm. And that's, in, in the end, that's what made me profitable later. But how did you find this specific property? This specific one? I don't remember how I met the guy. I remember sitting down at a Panera with the guy. Uh, he's just a young, a young guy that bought it. It was completely mismanaged and just in total chaos when I got it. Is it another young guy? Uh, what's that? He was another young guy. Another young guy. Yeah. Yeah. And he, it was like one of his first ones and you know, he had let somebody, you know, stay there and they weren't paying and just, they hacked into his, uh, coin laundry with a crowbar and took all his quarters out or something like that. So I was like, wow, you know, um, got a great price on it. you know, I think it was, it's probably worth like 350, 400 right now. And uh, it's a smaller apartment building. It's probably worth like 350, 400. I think I scooped it up for a hundred and something Mm -hmm. back then. So So you bought it for a hundred. Yeah. Um, did you have to re renovated oh yeah we did some work you what know. did you have to do um it wasn't huge on that one i was i was lucky it was mostly cosmetic stuff and even a lot of the cosmetics were in pretty good shape it's just the people that he had in there yeah, to uh, get the turnover the tenants oh yeah any anybody that was in there and some of the units weren't even inhabitable i mean it was yeah so let's talk about it yeah so basically uh <laughs> 
the the ten, I'm on the news uh, talking about this. Uh, and there's some article you can find uh, if you look hard enough. But um, there was a prostitution uh, ring down in the basement unit going on, and we uh, we had to kick all them out. I think they were the ones crowbarring out the uh, coin laundry. So sounds consistent. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the one thing about apartments. I mean, it's uh, there's there's definitely some advantages, but mm-hmm. I think people don't realize if you're not in an A class you know, neighborhood right on the, in the beginning of your investing, you're going to have to deal with some of these real problems that yeah. are apartment investing. So, so that was the biggest nightmare was the prostitution ring at, at that, at that building. It was, so <laughs> okay. what is it like in Iowa to have to evict somebody? Cause it's, it seems to be different in every mm, state. It is. So what was it like to evict someone? I mean, I'm Iowa? on the border of Illinois and you know, the differences between <laughs> Illinois and Iowa, you know, red state, blue state, uh, yeah. you know, but, uh, Iowa it's quick. And even the moratorium in Iowa wasn't nearly what the Illinois moratorium was. The yeah. Illinois moratorium is, you know, for all intents and purposes, still going on. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen tenants that haven't paid rent since, you know, 2019 that are still in, <laughs> uh, in Illinois. Um, but in Iowa, it's quick. You know, yeah. you can get people out in a few weeks if, you're, if you know what you're doing. So. so you had to get rid of the, I mean, you say prostitution, I mean, we're talking about like there are multiple tenants. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, that were servicing. I, yeah, there were. <laughs> this is this is documented somewhere, and I don't, this is going to be so unprofessional. There's a uh, there was a gal uh, named Strawberry that was down there uh, running a whole of bunch. Of course, her name was Strawberry. Whole, yeah, of course, and she's on on that. We saw her in the inmate listing. That's really her name. And yeah. I was like, oh wow, if she's if you're listening, <laughs> I'm sorry for dropping your name here. So, <laughs> um, okay, so you had to evict her. Yeah. Um, I mean, was was the pimp there too? He was there. Yep. Okay. Yep, so you had there. to get him evicted as well. Yep. So then what was the process like after you evicted everybody? The unit was trashed. I mean, it was, uh, all the cosmetics were just mangled and destroyed. So we had to go in and, you know, just, I was doing most of the work myself at that time. Um, I couldn't afford, you know, I had to wear all the hats. So I was attempting maintenance and attempting things. You don't want me doing maintenance. I mean, (laughs) I'm like a solid three out of 10 on maintenance at best, so. All right, so you're turning it over Mm -hmm. and now it's rented out. Yep. How much do you, do you have ballpark? How much you spent as far as renovating that apartment complex? You know, I probably wound up spending like three grand. Most of it was materials. You oh, know, that's not I, bad I was, at all. I was doing most of the work. So, all right. So you buy this thing for like a hundred something. What was mm-hmm. it? Yeah, it was, it was probably like a buck fifty. All right. So you buy it for hundred fifty. Yeah. How many units? Um, I think there's five in there. Yep. Okay. Five units. And then you you turn it over, and now it's it's up and running. Oh yeah. Yep. How'd you buy your second one? So I bought that one about a week before I bought my second one. So what I did is I just went all in. He said, here's a million bucks. I said, okay, <laughs> I just, yeah, let's, let's buy it all. Yeah. So um, I went ahead and just uh, went, went head first. And a lot of times I was buying stuff using seller finance too. Like people would seller finance to me. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to stretch that money as far as it could go. So, I mean, I was picking up, I think I went from like uh, one strip mall to like 80 units within like a year. Mm-hmm. I have to look back on my Facebook and see there was a post when I said, oh, wow, I have 80 units, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was like in year one. Um, but wow, a lot of growing pains. So going back into you know, the second one, right? Like yeah. How did you find that one? That one, um, I think it was actually a realtor friend of mine that did hook me up on that one uh, early in the early in on. But it was a uh, the guy that I had kind of known. Um, he had a six unit apartment complex in uh, North Davenport, and it was just in complete shambles. I mean, the ten the rents were probably two hundred dollars a month too low at least. Um, you know, the tenants weren't, uh, you know, paying or paying on time. They were, you know, throwing grease down the drains. They were, you know, baby wipes and you know, feminine products were getting. So there was this backup. I'll never forget this. There was this like sewer backup valve and it would 
every uh, every so often it would just flood the whole basement. All, both basement units would just get flooded. And it was something in a sewer main. I was going to have to spend $30,000 to renovate it or I could kind of hobble it along. So mm-hmm. we did that forever. And yeah, I mean, my first year in real estate was just a complete nightmare. Right. I mean, <laughs> so, but you're sourcing these deals. Yeah. You got a million to burn. Yep. So you have to burn it. So you have to use it. it. Yep. Um, you're using creative financing. Yep. Where did you get the wherewithal or the competency to start doing seller financing? So I just threw my head against the wall and just tried to learn as much as possible. Uh, in the early days, I didn't have any formal like business training or knowledge. And I think I just must have seen it in a book or an article or something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, you know, I can have somebody else that already owns the property and I can just, you know, buy it on contract. Like, mm-hmm. that's great. I bought some stuff with no money down back in those days. You can't mm-hmm. do that anymore, I don't think, or yeah. on anything meaningful. Right. Um, but I mean, I remember doing that and just being amazed by it. I was like, oh, wow, I can just get a thousand units. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see all the pitfalls involved, but yeah. But how were you presenting it? Yeah. If you were kind of like new at it? Yeah. Like, were these like savvy investors that understood it well? No. I mean, this I think, was just like the blind leading the blind. Yeah. So like one of them I picked up in Peoria, Illinois, which is a big area that I invest in as well. Um, it was a five unit apartment complex, everything on and running. Get this 17 grand. Seller financed. Yeah. Seller financed the 17. They financed the 17. Yes. It wasn't 17,000 down. They financed the rest. I know. I know. Yeah, of course it needed a bunch of work, but, you know, wound up fixing that up, you know, selling it for six figures, you know, getting that that done. Who was documenting all this? Who was creating the notes and the... Yeah, so we had attorney. One thing I always did was I always went through attorneys the whole way through. And thankfully, thankfully, because that saved me on more than one occasion. Yeah. but uh, yeah, I mean, one thing I did horrifically in the first year, two years was accounting and bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. I mean, forget about it. I didn't have QuickBooks. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, yeah. um, and it cost me. I wound up, uh, I made it through two IRS audits, full audits. So I got through them. I mean, I did fine. I passed them. But. Passed them? Yep. What did you have to do to pass them? Uh, I had to go through some serious paperwork. I think we probably filled maybe eight, nine bankers boxes full mm-hmm. of uh, paperwork. I had to, you know, within a very short window of time, relearn how to do bookkeeping. I had to read a whole bunch of books on taxes to see, oh, this isn't a write-off? Oh, I thought this would be a write-off. No, it isn't. Here's what you have to do to get mm-hmm. it to be a write-off. And that's why I always tell people when they're so, it seems like in real estate, everyone's so focused on tax savings all the time. They say, oh, well, that's a write-off. Well, yeah, it is. But if you do the proper documentation to make it so, mm-hmm. and you have to have, it's not just having QuickBooks, you have to have the right controller to be able to put that in. Same with property management software. Yeah, you can get Appfolio or one of these softwares, but if you don't have somebody behind the keyboard that knows what they're doing, you're screwed. Yeah. So you have an accountant now. Oh, yeah. All right. Accountant, bookkeepers, the whole nine. Okay. So what are some other lessons you learned from that audit? <laughs> Two audits. Yeah. So the audits are documentation, documentation, document. I can't say it enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have giant filing cabinets full of stuff. We've got Google Drive. We pay for extra storage on there just to store all the stuff. You just have to make sure that you're really meticulous. For example, I'll give you one really obvious thing, like coming out here for this trip. If I want to document um, my flight for this, I have to say what it was for, and I have to remember the dates. There's certain dates you can use. So if I come out two days early, that might not show up as a write-off. So I might only be able to do- to write off the day that I came out here, right? Mm-hmm. So, but you have to actually split off your trip right. on what's business and what's pleasure. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going out to, you know, Mount Lemon after this uh, to go hiking with my friend. And um, I'm going to stay there for probably three, four days, but I can't write that off. Oh, no, you but, can't. So, 
So you learn some painful lessons. Painful. So uh, one thing you, you touched on a moment ago is that we all hear about all the amazing things about owning an apartment complex, mm-hmm. but no one talks about the challenges. So you already shared one, right? Yep. Prostitution ring. Yep. Um, what are some other nightmares? I've nicknamed it the, the Uggs, okay? Let's talk bugs, about the Uggs. Bugs, thugs, oh. and drugs. Those are, the, those are the three. Bugs? Bugs, drugs, and thugs. Bugs, drugs, and thugs. <laughs> yep. All right. And uh, bed bugs. I know nobody wants to hear about those, but that's a very real thing. Um, and this is so much different from what I do now. I mean, mm. now my business is way different. But starting out, I mean, I was doing everything, trying to figure all this out. Um, when you get bed bugs in one unit, they spread. They spread mm. real quick, and it's expensive to get rid of them. It could be three, dollars $4,000 if you don't know what you're doing, and you hire somebody to heat the entire building up with these big you know, bands essentially to uh, pump hot air in uh, to hopefully treat and kill the bed bugs. Mm -hmm. But you have to do all the units. You can't just do one unit. So if you've got an apartment building, Mm. yeah, it's great because everything's under one roof and you get the scalability, but it's a double-edged sword because now one problem in one unit or one unruly tenant in one unit, now you're disrupting all the tenants in the building. So. That's How many times have you gone through bed bugs um, remediation? I'm sure I've spent probably fifty thousand on bed bugs yeah. over the course of my career, at least, and that was probably a gift. <laughs> Could have been more. <laughs> yeah. All right. So bed bugs. Yep. Drugs. Yep. So I mean, just you walk into a place, I and mean, these are not class A neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. So when I was starting out, I was class C and below. Uh, before we get into that, yeah. Class A, B, and C. You okay. want to elaborate what that means? Class A is going to be, you know, golf course areas where you're going to find, you know, most not really rental neighborhoods per se. They're not known for that. Uh, I would say class B is like one step down, kind of your residential neighborhoods, um, you know, good, decent schools. Class C is when you get into like rental neighborhoods, uh, neighborhoods where you might live, but you might not choose that one to live mm-hmm. in. Um, and I don't know if those are the textbook definitions, but that's I think I'm, everyone has their own yeah. definition. So I was in the C and below when I first started. Because yeah. that's all I could afford. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's all that made sense to me from a cap rate and cash flow standpoint. But with Class C comes Class C problems. And right. So what looks amazing on paper, high caps, everything like that, when you get in the thick of it, you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, wow, all these expenses are massive. You got, you know, people, uh, you know, doing meth in your units. And you've got, uh, you know, uh, people beating each other, you know, into submission inside your common hallways and literally stealing your coin laundry machines out of your building. Yeah. cutting your camera cords i mean it's i've seen it all it's, you can go wireless well yeah true yeah they'll they'll probably take now. the cameras yeah <laughs> yeah all right so i mean any crazy stories yeah i got a couple you want to hear them let's hear all them. right so I want people to know what they're getting into so i uh so I, I heard i got a phone call from some old you know some old lady somehow got my number in one of the neighborhoods and it was one of my complexes and she said are you excuse me sir are you aware this is nine o'clock at night are you aware that there's a man from one of your buildings, chasing another man through the street with a chainsaw. <laughs> and we got it on camera. Of course, he got arrested, you know, police. Um, but, you know, there, just get a reasonable explanation. It, it must have been, yeah. <laughs> but I got a lot of weird phone calls like yeah. that, um, you know. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so glad that I have done all of that. Because now I understand, as a private lender, like, what to look for. And, you know, all the things that don't show up on the, you know, on the, on the cash flow sheet. Well, and also there's the pro forma and there's the, the true. Yep. So, all right, so chainsaw. Yep. What other? Uh, boy, there's so many of them. Um, I had a guy, um, I think it was the same guy with the chainsaw. He put a ladder up to the second story apartment and just sort of like one night appeared in this in this girl's uh, apartment. You know, we had to call cops and, you know, the yeah. whole nine. So, yeah, there's just, I probably have like a hundred of those, but yeah. Yeah. 
So you should probably make a book on that. That would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then the, the third one was drugs. Yeah. So with the with the drugs, you've got, you know, um, once you get one unit that's got some, usually it's meth going on, you sort of have this revolving door where there's like people coming in and out all the time. And then all of a sudden your common areas start getting, you know, really disgusting. Your other tenants start wanting to leave. Um, you've got a lot of police calls and there's something called a nuisance abatement. When you get too many police calls on a unit, um, they will sometimes condemn your building, even mm. though it's not your fault. And I've seen that happen before. It hasn't happened to me. I got close a couple times in the early years. Um, but yeah, if you, if you do uh, too many, uh, have too many police calls at a unit, the, the government says, hey, this unit is a problem. And so for some reason, you know, we're getting all these police calls and it needs to stop. And if it doesn't stop, they'll condemn the building. So, so any interesting stories as far as the from, drugs, uh, you know, walking into units after we've booted somebody out and finding like a whole, you know, gang of needles, um, you know, just finding all kinds of paraphernalia and things, uh, you know, it, it was a little shocking to me the first few times. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So those are things to learn that you learn. Yeah. <laughs> it's not all rainbows and, and, no. and unicorns when, when you own apartment complexes. Nope. You can still make a lot of money. You just have right. to know those things going in that, look, everything that you, you hear, all these positive stories, because nobody wants to talk about the negatives. I'll mm -hmm. talk about the negatives all day long, you know, because yeah. I want to shine a light on all sides of it. So, so what, could one, what could someone do, right? They're listening to this podcast and mm -hmm. like, oh, man, I want to buy an apartment complex. Yeah. What could they do to prevent maybe not the belly button situation, mm -hmm. but the the chainsaw situation yeah. and the meth situation? What could they do to prevent that? I hate to say this, but sometimes you're not going to get a class A tenant in a class C neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen, right? Yeah. So I would say you need to start with a good neighborhood first. Uh, if you're if you've never done any investing, try to go into a place that's a little more turnkey, a little bit more of a nice neighborhood that you could see yourself living in, you're going to automatically attract the better tenants and you're not going to have to be forced to choose between a bad tenant and a worse tenant. So I would say that's a good stepping stone for that. But the exchange for that is the cap rate and yep. the cash flow. Yep, it can be. It can be. Now, um, what I had tried to do over the years was, hey, let's, let's, you know, after year one of getting completely just, you know, taking it in the short, I still made profit through that period, but at the expense of my sanity, and I probably put on 30 pounds doing it, you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. from stress eating. But uh, after that first year, once I got into 2017, I started to get a little smarter and I said, mm -hmm. okay, let me see if I can jump up into these B neighborhoods and get them for C prices, um, which I was doing pretty effectively. Um, so really once 2017 started, I, I got away from the, the class. Class C stuff more, and I jumped up into the higher classes, and that helped a lot. Were you keeping in touch with the banker the whole time? The whole time. Through? Yep, I never missed a payment. What was no? Well, I mean, like, does he know these stories? Does oh, yeah. he realize what's going yeah. on with the money? Yeah, he's we always laughed about it. Yeah, okay. His name's Chad. He's hilarious. He's All right, good guy. Um, so then you're moving up to to the B class uh, properties. Um, again, the, the question I have, and I think for the people that are listening, is mm -hmm. how are you sourcing these properties? Yeah. So. I would say my, and this is going to frustrate a lot of people, my strongest sourcing at the time, and I don't do that anymore, right? So I'm not uh, acquiring units right now. But back when I was, word of mouth was like 80% of it. I just got my name out there so much with everybody. And like they would- Blake will buy anything. Blake will buy it. Hey, I know a guy. I know a guy. Um, I remember I posted one of my, and I think I took it down just to- be a little more professional at the time, but we had some craziness happen at one of the buildings and it was very entertaining. Mm -hmm. uh, and I posted it up, got like 10,000 views in an hour or whatever, you know, <laughs> so in my local area. So that was, um, you know, my name got out there pretty quick for better or worse. Um, and I think people were just like, hey, we know Blake's in the in buy mode. Let's let's go to him, you know, and let's see what he'll offer us. And 
And I had to look at a lot of properties before I could get through that. Was it kind of like a We Buy Ugly Apartments? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have, uh, I think uh, one of your other guests referenced a, a book called uh, by Mitch Steven. Um, mm. I can't remember the name of it now, but My Life in a Thousand Houses. Mm. That was a great book. And he's got pizza box signs on his cars and all kinds of other craziness. I never went to that extreme, but I was yeah. doing what I could guerrilla marketing wise to get my name out there. And Got it. And then at some point he said, you know what? Apartments isn't for me. No. Nope. When did that happen? Um, that was right after that first year. And I just said, you know, let me just move toward uh, more towards single family houses. But you got to like 100 units. Yep. In that first, probably in that first, you know, maybe year and a few months, I got up to over, it was 80 in the first year. And then I think I started moving up into the mid 100s uh, that next okay. year. So. All right. But then at some point you got up to 300. Yep. It was like 320. All somewhere right. In there. So you were still buying apartments. So I was actually, I started buying single family packages massive packages of single family so i went in and i was I, I remember i went to peoria and like within like a month or two i scooped up like 80 houses wow yeah, that was nuts okay so so all right so you're if you're buying all these houses yep you still have these apartments or you say you have Lake Manor? i've got a few apartments yeah i've still got selby manor and a few buildings um i think my apartments now is probably less than five percent of my portfolio okay but. so then what so you, you you go to single family yeah less stressful way less Way okay. less. Still has still has a lot of headaches, but way less stressful than the apartments. Got it. Yeah. And then at some point you decide to liquidate. Yep. So I, I said, you know, um, and this, like I said, that timing when I bought most of it in 15 and 16 and, you know, parts of 17, um, I got lucky because the economy has only gone up from then. Mm -hmm. So when I decided to liquidate it was kind of the tail end of 2019, right before COVID, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. And I said, you know, um, I said, prices are they're starting to rise a lot. And I think, what if I just sell off like 200 of these things? Mm -hmm. So I did that. I mean, and some of it was in some huge sales where I sold off like, you know, uh, I think one time I sold off like 74 houses in one, you know, shot. Um, but, you know, I sold uh, 200 of them off at such a profit that I was able to pay off the remaining 100. And I think I have like 104 left and then still have seven figures cash in the bank yeah. and, and pay off all my bank loans. So it was like, yeah, it's a no-brainer. I mean, you know, I can, I, I don't need to be, I'm not super fancy. You don't see me in like yachts or like private planes. I, I see some guys, they're all, you know, showing off their private planes, more power to them, but that's just not who I am. I'm just a little more simple than that. Selling 74 in a block. Yep. yep. You must have had to pay a discount. No, not at all. Not at really? all. No, I mean, I, I, I crushed it. Actually, sometimes I think it's easier to sell them in a block, um, especially if you're selling them on contract. I think that particular one I did sell on contract, and then I sold the note. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to how I got into my actual business that I do now. Got it. But, what about the, the capital gains implications? Yeah, there are. And I, I will be probably very opposite of most of your guests when it comes to taxes. Mm -hmm. I don't even think about them. Yeah. So I know that sounds just cost nuts. of doing business. I mean, I, I've been through two audits. I know, you know, I'm not doing frivolous things to purposely, you know, get taxes. But if I have an opportunity to make a large sum of money, I'm mm -hmm. going to take it regardless yeah. of what tax bracket it puts me in. Last year, I think I paid like a quarter million in taxes. Mm -hmm. I had to write that check, you know, to the IRS. That was painful. I looked at it and I cried a little inside, you yeah. know, but. This um, is that year when you liquidated or before? No, this is just last year. Okay, what the year when you liquidated your portfolio? Oh, uh, I'm sure it was even more. Yeah. 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 I don't remember what that figure was, but it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's it was an upsetting figure. Right. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I think about it, I'm way happier now. You know, I'm in such a better spot. I mean, I'm a smaller fish, but I'm a very healthy fish. Yeah. Whereas before I was this, you know, 
monster, but I was, you know, bloated and, you know, wasn't healthy. So leveraged. You leveraged. Stressed. The, yeah, leveraged to the gills. I had Stress million, eating. Yeah, I had millions in loans. I mean, yeah. millions in loans, uh, private and, you know, conventional. And, um, and you're debt-free today. Debt-free, yep. Yeah. So. And that's what the the big thing for you is you're debt-free. Yep, debt-free and with, you know, I've, I've, I've gotten, you know, a lot of money loaned out to mm-hmm. people. Now people pay me. So that's right. what I like. So... You sell your portfolio on yep. the contract, seller finance. Some of it. I, I would say two-thirds of it I sold outright. Okay. And then the other maybe third I did on seller finance. And then with the seller finance, you sold the note. The note. note. Yeah. Right. So ha- tell me about selling that note. Yeah, so I remember I was just uh, I was just like working out one day, and I was like, wow, you know, um, I just the thought popped in my head. I was like, I've sold these things on seller financing. Can I just get my cash out of this mm-hmm. and sell the note to somebody? And in my back of my mind, I was like, no, probably not. Like, who would buy your note, right? Mm-hmm. So I just did what I always do and just attack it. And uh, I made a whole list of every single note buyer that I could find. And I there's probably hundreds of them that I made. And I called every single one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, here's what I've got. Here's what I've got. Here's what I've got. A lot of people tell me, oh, you'll never sell. Oh, you know, nobody will give you a good price. So you love just cold calling people. I, apparently, I, I must. I, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. So uh, let's take a step back for the people listening. What is a note? So a note is a, a mortgage or a promissory note, um, you know, on a property. So um, typically when you're, when people say note, what they're referring to is the debt on the property, mm-hmm. which is uh, usually two components, a mortgage and a promissory note or a contract for deed arrangement. Yeah. Um, or sometimes there can be an option, but that's very obscure. Basically, if you have a mortgage on your home, yeah, Bank of America, Chase Bank, Wells Fargo, yep. wh- however, they're holding your note. Yep. Right. Yeah. Okay. Or sometimes so, they sell it off to a, a third party and bundle right. it up into a you know RM you know residential mortgage backed security yeah. and RMBS and they have CMBSs too which are like commercial. Sorry, I'm like digressing yeah. here. So going on a little bit of a tangent. All right. Yeah. So so that's what a note is. What's a note buyer? So a note buyer is somebody who looks to buy the already existing debt on a property and usually they want a haircut on it mm-hmm. for doing so. Um, so I'll buy notes sometimes. What's a haircut? A haircut depends. A lot of them want 25% off, which is mm-hmm. huge. Right. Um, and I'll never, you know, probably sell my stuff at that. So discount. if you had a promissory note for 100000 on mm-hmm. $150,000 property, right. they want to buy that mortgage from you for 75000 Right. Typically. And right. that's, that's the big, you know, institutional note buyers. That's what they're looking to do. I mean, they, they've got whole processes and procedures, but then you've got private note buyers, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of what I specialize in working with uh, these folks who when I'll, I'll generate a note, maybe it's, you know, $100,000, let's just say. And then somebody, you know, comes to me and they say, you know, hey, Blake, uh, you have anything that you want to sell me? I said, yeah, you can, you know, buy this note I have for, you know, it's a $100,000 note. Um, you know, I'll, I'll make sure that I sell it to you so that it works out to where you have a, you know, 7%, um, you know, guaranteed return pretty much on the note, unless they default. But it, in that case, my notes are very safe. So right. if, you, if they default, they'd probably make more money. But uh, so I'm kind of like a note matchmaker sometimes. But then I use my own money to buy them too. So. So how are you finding note buyers? Yeah, finding note buyers isn't that hard. I mean, it's literally just reaching out to people and it, it doesn't have, what's nice about a note buyer is it doesn't have to be someone who's in the industry because buying a note is 100% passive. I mean, you're literally, you, you know, you kind of set it and forget it. Um, you can even, if you want to take it one step further, you can hire a servicing company, mm-hmm. which I don't do, but you can. Uh, we service all our own, you know, loans. Um, but you can hire a servicing company to, uh, do that for you. Um, so if somebody's, um, you know, basically buying one of my notes that I own, if I'm selling it directly to them, um, you know, 
typically there's not much servicing that needs done. Um, so I'm sure you'll talk about this with me later, but I usually don't make people do monthly payments, which is one of the really unique things about me. That's so, really odd. Yep. yep. Um, so there's no servicing to be done, right? <laughs> That's why I don't do it because I don't want to deal with it. So, but like, how did you, I mean, is there a directory, a software? Like how do you find the people that are buying notes in your market? Institutionally, if you want to find, uh, if you want to, you know, what I did is I went, I know this sounds archaic. I just went on Google and like looked at the first like 40 pages on Google and I made my own directory of everyone who I ever would see to buy a note. There are some exchanges like where you can. So you're saying these are people that are saying they're advertising that yes. they buy notes. Yep, they're advertising it. Now, if you want to take it one step further, you can go into these note uh, buying and selling exchanges. Now, mm -hmm. I have not worked too much in that space because I haven't had the need to. I mm -hmm. already have enough leads. But there are some exchanges you can go into and post your note for sale. I'm sure that they take a commission off of it. Um, I don't know how that works. I'm sure they do. But I yeah. also think that if they're not advertising on Google, they might be able to pay more than 75%. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And a lot of people will pay a lot more than that. You just have to find, uh, you know, find the right person. So. Right. Okay. So you start selling notes. And then this is what opens the door on you becoming a private lender. Yep. So before you, had, you sold your note, yep. private lending was not your... Well, I guess you had to because you were liquid. Right. So you were thinking about it, yeah. And then the, the selling note kind of created more opportunities. It pushed me over the edge. I said, "Wow, you know, I can consistently sell these things." So these things, I wanted it to be liquid. Whatever I moved into next, I wanted it to be completely liquid. Something I could get out of at any time that I wanted to. What I found with real estate is that it's so illiquid, and I kind of have a rule for myself nowadays. I call it the fifty percent rule. So no more than fifty percent of my portfolio can be made up of assets that can cash flow less than zero. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna say that again? Yeah. Okay. No more than 50% of my portfolio can be made up of assets that can cash flow mm -hmm. less than zero. Okay. So I don't want something so that if it can, can be take, vacant. You don't want it. Yep. I, I don't want something that can take me up, take me negative, right? right? For more than half of my portfolio. Mm -hmm. So I looked at private lending and I said, hey, worst case scenario, you know, I'm just the mortgage guy, right? I'm not gonna go negative on this thing. You know, worst case scenario, I'll just be tied up in it for a few years. But in the interim, I don't have code violations, lawsuits, you know, all these other things that could happen even with a vacant property. Yeah. So. Okay. So you get into lending and what, what happened next? Yeah. I, I just, I got into lending and I said, look, could I loan at a two to one collateral spread where the property is, let's say uh, a $200,000 property. Could I do a loan on that property? Would somebody ever want a loan from me for just 100,000 on that? Because mm -hmm. that's really safe, you can't lose, right? Right. Um, even, especially if the property's assessed at 200,000 and it's in similar condition, uh, maybe it's list price is even higher. So that's what I started doing, that, that was my rule. I said, you know what, I'm gonna see how many folks would allow me to do these really low LTV loans and that's what I started doing. I said, wow, let me just get in so I'm super safe. So if we have another 2008 scenario, I'm not up a creek. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would just be a few, you know, here and there. I have so many of these things coming across my desk per day. And it's mostly flippers, you know, that want to use me short term. Um, I can't even fund them all. I mean, not that, wow. not, not that I, I mean, I'm not going to tie up all my cash. I mean, I'm very liquid. Um, but I have, I have ones that are, so I, I cherry pick the ones, right? So mm -hmm. if they're like A plus loans, I'm picking those for myself. But there's all these A loans that I would recommend to anybody all day. And unfortunately, a lot of them, I just have to say, I'm sorry, like I can't fund your deal. So mm -hmm. I'm watching them just nothing happen. So that's what got me the idea of, I wonder if there's some people out there that would like to buy these and then just give me like a, a matchmaker fee, if you will. And mm -hmm. just, they can just buy them themselves. I'll just tell them about them. Like, here, talk to this guy. 
and then you know cut me a check if you want to (laughs) if you don't cut me a check you're not getting another lead from me so (laughs) gentleman's agreement but so that's uh what i've done and a lot of people are buying these notes and making you know seven to ten percent passive i mean just passive returns they don't have to do anything they don't have to mess with anything in their short term most of my loans are one year or less so it's perfect for a flipper so for flippers it makes sense you're not a flipper if you're not a flipper, it doesn't make as much sense. I still have guys that they want to use me just for acquisitions mm-hmm. to be able to get the property done uh, when they have a sweetheart deal that they can't pass up and the bank's too slow. Yeah. Uh, or they don't, they're not bankable, but they will be bankable soon. So they'll hit me up and say, hey, Blake, like I had a guy in Missouri. He had me grab seven houses for him. Mm-hmm. Right? They're all rentals. But he said, hey, let, let me buy these with you. I'll refi you out later when yeah. I get around to it. So you have like transactional funding? I know what transactional funding is. I don't do transactional funding per se, but what I'll do is I'll do a really short-term loan mm-hmm. if I have to. Um, the reason I don't do transactional funding is because it's so dependent upon the title company and the attorney being good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. Not that a lot of them are, but it's, there's so many nuances to that that right. so many things can go wrong. So I try not to do specific transactional funding. But what I will do is a very short-term loan to allow them to acquire the properties mm-hmm. at least. So, And what's your minimum? I'm not, doing it. I'm not getting out of bed for less than 12%. It's not yeah. doing it. Points? Uh, I don't do any points. So here's the nice thing. So yeah, everyone's like, oh, 12%, that's high. Okay, well, it was high until you factor in the, the, the fact that I have no upfront fees at all. Not even appraisals, not even origination, mm-hmm. nothing. Um, I don't charge any points at all. So you know what you're getting with me. You 1% know? a month. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's if I really like the deal. If, if, if I'm not as keen on the deal, but I still think I might do it, I might charge a little more than that, depending on the risk factor. But Got it. If it's a really straightforward deal, like I just mentioned, typically I'll just do like 12. And then uh, one thing that um, we were talking about before was the scamming yeah. or a scamming components. Can you, can you talk about what that is? Absolutely. So I can't tell you how many phone calls I get from people that are like, Blake, I, um, I just lost $5,000. I sent it to some guy for an upfront fee. He needed it for appraisal points, all these things on a, on a loan. They send their money, you know, in good faith. Guy disappears. They have no recourse. So can you give me an example? Yeah. So there's a, there's a guy out of Wisconsin. I can't remember his name, but he went around and I heard from a few of his clients. He went around and basically gave people these, um, all these promises that they were going to get funded, but they had to, to wire him in or send him in a check of X amount of money, whether it was for the appraisal or the origination or all the other fees that maybe we'll talk about later. But, um, these poor people sent in all this money and they're sending that money to, get to him a, direct to get a loan to get a loan yes okay. thinking that they have to, oh, it's like oh these are points these are things that people hear about so they think it must be legitimate and they send in all these fees for appraisals points and all the other fees that there are uh, that people make up outside of close outside of closing yep Got it. and they you know it's escrow wire fraud essentially if you think about it it sounds like the guy should be in prison it sounds like it but unfortunately Um, too often these people don't have the legal means or the wherewithal to go after. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure karma always comes around, so it's always going to nip you. But, um, there's some, I've read some pretty crazy stories and have heard a lot of people that have, you know, gotten screwed over. So it's, it's very, very scary. So if someone's not careful, what are some of the things you're talking about? You know, you've read these things like, what are some things can happen if you're not careful? Yep and causing to get scams. Well, the first thing that can happen is just what I said. I mean, you, you're sending you know, money for upfront fees to somebody. That's called the upfront fee or um, the fee collector lender scam is what it's commonly known as. Um, basically, that's probably the first 
thing, but there's a lot of things you can do to warn against that. I mean, you, you know, check these people out. I mean, look into them a little bit. Obviously, Steve, you've got a, a tremendous social media presence. You've got a reputation. So somebody like yourself is going to be more legitimate with a website and all these other things. If you get a hold of somebody and, you know, you're looking at their profile and they have like two friends and it looks like, I mean, just use your judgment. I mean, there's all these indicators, but. Use some common sense. <clears throat> yep. Okay. So what, so the worst of it is, is losing 5,000 or maybe more if they're wire, if it's a wire fraud situation. That can be bad. Um, there's also something called the bait and switch scam, which is basically where a lender will give you terms. You guys agree to it. You send the money in. They are legitimate. Um, but then at the last second, they're like, oh, hey, guess what? Um, yeah, actually, I'm going to charge you double what I said. And, uh, oh, your deal needs to close tomorrow? Ooh, yeah, that's too bad. You know? Really? So it happens all the time. Yep. Really? The bait and switch. Yep. The reason I know so much about this is because, uh, you know, I kind of figured you guys were going to ask me a lot of this stuff. So mm -hmm. I ran a meta analysis of like 30 articles and videos on mm -hmm. the subject. And I kind of came up with like common themes. And I read all about these people's stories and everything like that. So, um, but yeah, there's names for these scams that are really. So, what are some common themes for, you know, uh, for the people who are listening that yeah. are thinking about, wholesaling or flipping houses, yep. what are some things they need to look out for when they're borrowing? If somebody needs upfront fees from you, you should really think twice because yeah. a great lender, like somebody who's actually with it, why do they need fees from you? It's an amazing deal. They, what, they can't front the, you know, the little, uh, you know, due diligence on their own? Come on yeah. now. Like, that's not a real, uh, in my opinion, that's not a real uh, Well, person. I'm with you on that because yeah. when you brought this up just now, I've never heard of anyone ever paying outside of escrow. Yep. You always pay through escrow. I recommend it. The lender fronts it. Yep. And he gets reimbursed at closing. Yep. And that's why with me, I would tell people like, look, I don't need any money from you mm -hmm. at all. Like, I don't even need monthly payments. Yeah. So, you know, is it, oh, is this a scam? No. Yeah. You're not paying me any money. How am I, if, if it's a scam, that's a really bad scam for me. <laughs> you know? It's a terrible so, scam. Yeah. All right. So that's the first thing. If they're sending money outside mm -hmm. of close. Yep. What else? Uh, obviously, the second thing is going to be the terms too good, uh, which kind of ties in with the bait and switch. So mm -hmm. terms too good, based on all the articles I read, the average private lending percentage that people charge in the industry is between 6 and 15%. Mm -hmm. And people say, oh, no, I got a guy who can do it for 2.9. Oh, okay. You know? And then the other thing is, it's like these long-term loans. You got to watch out for that. So the term length, mm -hmm. if you see somebody offering you a 20 or 30-year loan, you know, at, at three, four, 5%, chances are it's a scam. They're going to want money from you up front. Mm. And they might not be the guy with the money. That's the other thing you got to watch out for is there's nothing wrong with a broker. I mean, we, we our whole industry runs off of brokers in one way or another. Mm -hmm. But you have to be really careful that the person that you're dealing with has the decision-making uh, ability. Yeah. And they're not just some underling that, you know, is just hoping to basically tally you up onto their roster to get some, you know, some, some fees and some things. And they wind up doing an appraisal origination fees. And then they say, Oh yeah, we, we checked it out. Sorry. Uh, we don't like your deal. And then you're out all this money mm -hmm. into a mom and pop investor, somebody who's just getting going, you know, a thousand bucks might not seem a lot like, you know, for you and I to, to, to shell out, but these people, that's a huge percentage of their net worth. Right. You know, they're shelling out. I feel terrible for them. So, um, you bring up junk fees. Yep. What are some junk fees that people need to look up? I'm glad for? you asked. So yeah. I went ahead and brought a note card uh, with, uh, I feel like I'm in uh, grade school again. Got my note cards out. So you ready? I'm going to go through the list here. Yeah. Application fee, origination fee, legal fee, administrative fee, environmental fee, due diligence fee, documentation fee, underwriting fee, appraisal fee, inspection fee, life insurance fee, title fee, trust fee, loan insurance fee, transaction fee, closing fees, point fees, financial guarantee, surety, bond, certificate fee. It's a catastrophe. <laughs> so, so, yeah. 
Life insurance fee. I haven't heard that one. Yeah. Basically, what they'll do is they'll make people take out a policy on mm-hmm. themselves, uh, you know, in the event that they, you know, yeah, you know I get it. I've just never heard get that. Get hit by a that. bus. These are just, you know, all the fees that I've heard specifically people talk about having to, to deal with and pay. I don't think that there's a, a lender or a fee collector lender out there that would have all of those mm-hmm. on a sheet. I don't That's think that a they. Lot. Yeah. I didn't but, hear one fee. Um, PETA fee. Okay. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm familiar with that one. So there's a story. I was telling Ryan about this the other day. So there's a, a, a case, right, where someone charged a PETA fee. Okay. And the guy is like, uh, what is this fee? And he's like, I don't want to tell you. He's like, well, no, you have to tell me. He's like, no, I'm not going to tell you what the fee is. And uh, <laughs> the guy actually took him to court. Wow. And won. And the court and the judge was like, you have to tell him what a PETA fee is. And basically what a PETA fee is, is a pain in the ass fee. <laughs> okay, I got you. Right. Gotcha. And of course, the guy was definitely a PETA fee. Right? Yeah. Because he took it all the way to court. Definitely a pain in the butt. Yeah. Um, okay, so obviously there's a lot of junk fees. And then, wow, there's other ones I've never heard of before. Yeah. So it's crazy. So you're very passionate about lending. Absolutely. And so explain to me why you don't collect payments. That so part is weird to me. I wanted to be different. So yeah. when I started private lending, I said, okay, I, I really want to, I mean, obviously I've still got uh, my company, I've got employees and we, we run a whole operation out in uh, Davenport. So we're doing, you know, we, we're controlling something like 400 units. I mean, not all of them are mine, but you know, we're, I have financial interest in, in, in them in some way so that we can, you know, manage them. Um, but basically, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be unique and carve out a niche in the space. That's unique. Yep. And so I said, what does everybody want? You know what they want? They want no upfront fees and they don't want any monthly fees either. So all these flippers were coming to me and they're like, man, like, you know, how, how do I get one of those? Because they don't care because they're going to make so much profit on the deal that my nominal, okay, if I'm 3% higher than the next guy, but I don't have the fees that he has, mm-hmm. isn't it a wash? Right. You know, and then you don't have the holding costs. So you can plow all your, you can, you know, maximize your, uh, your, your money to put it into the flip. And then what I find is I don't have to charge crazy, crazy amounts because most people that, you know, they're able to get the flip done. I charge them for a year, right? Cause I don't want anybody to, you know, if I do a three month loan or something, I don't want somebody to have to get foreclosed on on month four or something, mm-hmm. you know, cause they didn't get it done. I give everybody a year and you know, if they pay me early, that's just a benefit for me because mm-hmm. I charge them a flat amount of money for the year, right? So I'm not just doing a percentage basis. I'm saying, hey, if you want a $100,000 loan, I'm making 12 grand minimum mm-hmm. for the one year. Hey, if you pay me off in nine months, great for me. You know, right. I made a higher percentage. But the thing is, is I don't want, uh, I don't want you to, I don't want to set you up to fail. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not in the business of foreclosing on people. I never want to do a foreclosure. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm familiar with the process. I have done, you know, them in the past. It's not something that I want to do. So. Got it. Uh, so Nathan Hurt wants to know how long did it take to build a big portfolio? Yeah. I mean, a solid, probably year and a half, two years of just grinding it out. I mean, just every day. I mean, that's, I woke up in the morning, thought about, okay, how do I get units? How do I get units? You know, yeah. at any cost. So um, I don't recommend necessarily that other people do it that way. Mm-hmm. It worked out for me. But again, I also had a rising economy on my side. And I was in an area where the cash flows made sense. You know, I don't know if that would work in like Miami or something. So. Right. Yeah. But I think the key here is that you're more or less obsessed with it. Right. And that's one of the keys I see in a lot of different other people that come on the show is how are they able to, able to accomplish what they've accomplished is because they're obsessed right. with what they're trying to accomplish. So for better or for worse, your obsession is to get units. Yep. Um, all right. And then uh, what's a few keys to building cash flow? So... I would say like my 50% rule where you don't want more than half of your portfolio to be able to take you down negatively cash flowing every month. Okay. Mm -hmm. So 
you need your solid investments, which in my opinion could be, you know, something similar to a bond. But the problem is, is that if you go on Google and type in what's an average AAA bond yield, it's like 2.6. And that's for a corporate average bond yield. I don't know if you get out of bed for 2.6, but I don't. So um, that's kind of, I look at my, you know, my, my uh, private lending as that stable force, you know, Hey, I'm not going to go negative, but there's other things. I mean, my way is not the only way, but mm -hmm. I just found, I said, I want something safe that has good returns. That's passive and consistent. And so that's what I chose. Um, if somebody else wants cash flow, yes. Do flips work? Of course they do. They've worked for, you know, you know, decades. Um, but the problem is, is with flips, again, it can take you down cost overruns, contractors skipping out on you. Um, there's just so many problems that can go on with uh, flips. Lots to manage. Man, you know, management. And the nice thing is you need some part of your portfolio that isn't eating all your time. Yeah. So that was the thing that happened with me is I was just waking up, rolling out of bed, work, you know, and then, oh, it's super dark and I'm exhausted bed you know <laughs> and that was my day for like years so yeah. it's only more recently um that i you know completely uh you know got all of my stuff you know what i would say um unleveraged that i was able to you know really start enjoying life again and finding some kind of a balance and um, i'm better at the, the small amount of things that i do now because i i have so much room for creativity and thought and other things yeah well and you're kind of living the life that you dreamed of yep when you first started yep and I'm glad uh, I did that stuff because yeah. it makes me a way better lender to have done, uh, gone through, slogged through all of building it because I can relate to these people more. Flippers, I was doing tons of flips along the way too. I can relate to flippers and other people know their pains and I can predict with a little more accuracy, what is this loan's true risk? Yeah. You know? um, anyway, and guys, I forgot. Um, we do have our sales training event. So if you guys are interested in our sales training event on September 25th, Send me a DM, Instagram, uh, on sales training, uh, and then we'll be sure to plug you in uh, if you guys are interested in that. Uh, on Instagram, Ingrid Hernandez wants to know, do you do construction loans? Yes. Um, so I actually just got done doing one uh, up in Wisconsin. Uh, basically, the guy had a house, probably a half a million dollar house, and he he had it paid off. Like he had the property bought and partially built. So he had already built this thing up pretty uh, solidly, beautiful house, all custom. He did it himself. He's a, he's a great builder. And so what I said is I said, okay, how much do you need to finish this thing? He mm -hmm. needed around a hundred grand to get the thing done. So I just went ahead and kicked him alone, you know, for a hundred grand, but I used the property as collateral. So he had collateral that at the time, even in the current state that it was in, it was already built. It just needed finished. So I felt safe that it was a two to one collateral spread where I felt like, okay, worst case scenario, the economy COVID round two happens, whatever, whatever. I'm still going to recoup and more if this thing goes south. Right. So. He has every reason to make sure you're whole. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's good for him too, because he didn't have to, it's tough for banks. They don't like to do construction loans as frequently because it's just right. not as straightforward. So sometimes in the amount of time somebody's waiting to get approved for a bank, they could have got a loan from me. I can fund in three hours as long as the lawyers have done their jobs, right? right? So, um, you know, I require people to work with a, a an attorney in the area where the property is, because I want to be make sure I'm complying with all the state lending laws wherever I'm lending at. Um, and so the attorneys make sure that I'm in compliance with everything and I let them do their job. So I tell people, I can't control the speed of a at local attorney in your area, but what mm -hmm. I can control is how quickly I can send a wire. And that's right. three hours. So. Gotcha. Um, so you, you keep saying, you know, two to one collateralized, yes. right? Um, I'm more used to the term 50% LTV. LTV, sure. It's, it's, it's essentially, it's the same thing. Is there another community that you're a part of that has a different 
conversation as far as like lending notes and so on. Yeah, so the reason that I say collateral spread is because when I say LTV, it assumes that the value is the metric. And the usually when people are determining, determining value, they're looking at ARVs or things like that. I don't look at that. I look at assessed values from the county, assuming that the property is in similar condition to those. So I say two to one collateral spread because I don't want to be misleading and say, hey, it's a 50% LTV. Because then somebody brings me an appraisal and they said, okay, where's my 50%? I don't want yeah. them to you know, feel like they've been misled. No, I'm telling them, hey, I'm going to determine what the value of this thing is. Mm -hmm. And so I want the collateral, you know, the spread to be 50% of where Got I'm it. into. So that's why All I right. say that. Is there a community? I'm sure that there is. I need to find it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think that there's as many private lenders that do it full time as, as you would think, or at least individual private lenders. Mm -hmm. I've come across a lot of uh, like hard money lenders and things like that. But People that are way over here uh, in left field like I am, you know, doing all these like no uh, monthly payments and no upfront fees and being really, uh, you know, I guess client friendly. I haven't seen a lot of that. So. No, you're definitely a unique breed. I try to be. <laughs> um, and then uh, Raylan White wants to know, what are you doing to screen tenants in classy areas? And I know you're not really buying them anymore, but yeah. if you were, what would you do? So in classy areas, it's tough. Um, there are some neighborhoods like in Peoria, Illinois, for example, it's, it's a very, uh, like the South side there is an extremely rough area. Um, mm -hmm. crime rates, huge, um, unemployment, you know, is, is pretty big there, but with those areas, you can cash flow like crazy. So for screening, the number one thing we do is we always require a full rent and a full deposit. Okay, I know that sounds like, duh, like why wouldn't you? But in those areas, it's sometimes it's tough to even get that. So I would much rather have somebody bring more money to the table. So we kind of financially will screen them out um, that way. Um, obviously, we're checking to see if they have like evictions on their background because we don't want to have somebody that just got evicted hop into one of our units. Mm -hmm. But am I going to get a 700 credit score person to go move into the hood? No, not going to happen. So, yeah. And then uh, Cass1Will on Instagram wants to know, do you do home equity lines of credit? Um, we do. I guess so. I think the answer would be yes in that, you know, if you have a, a home or a, a project and you come to me and you say, hey, Blake, I need a loan, you know, I need to extract some cash out of my house. It's the same process. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, I would. As long and as there's equity. As long as, as there's equity there. there yeah. And that's what I did. I told you about the guy in Missouri. I, I picked up seven houses for him there. Mm -hmm. He put up his personal home as, you know, collateral for that because there wasn't quite enough collateral in the deal. So yeah, if you bring additional collateral to my deals, that still counts for the two to one collateral spread. Yep. So as long as you have, as long as I'm covered, I'm good. So. And then uh, Alizette Zapita wants to know, how did you find a good CPA? Yeah. So I got fortunate enough to have been a part of like similar to like a BNI group that I was in. And back in uh, 2017, right around the time I started getting my stuff together, <laughs> it, he just happened to be there, real straight-laced guy. Just I could tell he was ultra good at his job. Um, he was not aggressive with the accounting, which is one of the reasons that I did so well in my audits, um, because we weren't going out there and taking a whole bunch of accounting risks. Um, you know, we were looking at it and saying, hey, we're not trying to get away, get one over on the IRS or anything mm -hmm. like that. We were just, hey, let's be in compliance. And um, I feel like the super aggressive CPAs, you really want to watch out for that because you're yeah. going to get flagged for an audit quickly. Yep. Uh, and Nathan Hurst says that you just did a hotel. You just did a hotel transaction? So there was a, a hotel that I was looking at. I actually know Nathan. He's a great, cat, uh, great guy. Uh, I've worked with him. He actually, uh, I think I... 
uh, finance him on three, two or three houses uh, here recently. Um, there was a ho- big hotel project that I was looking at uh, in Illinois. Um, I went out there to check it out. I think I was telling him about it the day I was going out there. And I ended up going out there to check it out. And the guy had these pictures that he had sent me. Well, these mm-hmm. pictures were like 10 years old. And yeah. I went out there and he had allowed the roof to leak for like three years straight just let it leak into the hotel. So by the time I got there, it was like a days in type hotel. The time I get there, I walk in, I just get hit with mold, black mold all through the property. And I was like, yeah, I'm good, dude. <laughs> but yeah, that was uh, that was the hotel transaction that I was really interested in was that one there. Because um, yeah. had the pictures been relevant, I mean, I could have scooped a, I think it was like a 160 unit hotel for, you know, low six figures. So Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, and then Gabriel O wants to know, do you lend on land? Sometimes. In very rare instances, I will. If there's a ton of equity in it, I will. I just need to make sure that there's a buyer for that land. That's the issue. So mm-hmm. land is tough. If you're not in a, you know, in a good enough area, if you're just, you know, kind of in a class C neighborhood and you have a, a strip of land, sometimes it's hard to source a buyer for that. Yeah. Um, so if I got stuck with it, had to do a foreclosure, I really don't have anything to, um, you know, I, I can't be liquid anymore. So um, one thing that uh, we talked about before we started was that you also, um, where your focus is on lending. Yeah. So when you wholesale or flip, it's kind of like things that kind of fall in your lap. It is. So like I was telling you yesterday, I accidentally made 20,000 on a, on a wholesale fee. I mm-hmm. didn't, I, you know, it just happened, just kind of fell in my lap. So um, I think I've made like six figures this year off of just wholesale fees and I wasn't even trying to, like mm-hmm. it just kind of happened because I meet so many sellers and buyers with doing the loans that of course, like there's going to be some synergy there and I'm going to occasionally get a property, you know, back or, um, you know, and I'll wind up flipping it because why wouldn't I? It's right there, you yeah. know? So um, I call those like accidental wholesales, accidental flips. So I have this other, these other revenue streams that I don't actively pursue them, but if they happen along the way, I just want to be good in my one lane. Um, and I also, the reason I just do lending is because I don't want my lending clients to think that I'm competing with them for deals. Mm-hmm. So I don't want them to say, Hey, uh, I found this great deal and then be worried about me taking the deal. So that's why I don't do any acquisitions anymore. Um, unless it's an extreme case, right? Yeah. So I'm not actively pursuing acquisitions myself for that reason. And then, uh, just expand on this again. What are you doing today to market your lending business? Yeah. So in addition to word of mouth, which has been going great, um, I've found that in the online social media communities, there's a lot of demand for these loans. And so I've got employees and VAs and things that are going into these groups and, you know, uh, making comments. Sometimes I'll even go in and do it myself. I haven't done it for a little while now, but uh, I'll go in and, you know, if I see somebody, hey, uh, it posts in a Facebook group, hey, I need a loan on this. You know, maybe I'll have one of my employees just go in there and say, hey, you know, tell me, tell us about the loan. We have a deal submission form on our website, mm. uh, selbyrentals.com, which is on my hat here, uh, where you can go in and just fill out everything, go through our little checklist and submit a deal to us. And yeah. then we just get back to you and say, hey, this is a this is a go or this is a no. So, um, And then to run your business with everything you got going on, mm-hmm. what is your monthly overhead? So I'll give my employees a little shout out. Kristen and Savannah are my two office employees that are actually working my office direct. So you have a huge operation here. My operation is tiny compared to yours. So um, we are lean and mean. Uh, Kristen and Savannah have been with me for years. Um, they do a fantastic job just basically handling all of the, uh, you know, the loan docs, so to speak, and working with the attorneys and pushing things forward. I'm more or less, 
you know, acquiring the, the leads and mm-hmm. things like that. I've also got two VAs, which are full-time for me too. So I've got four full-time employees. And the VAs, uh, I was watching an episode of this uh, that you did with a gentleman. He was talking about the Philippines with VAs and their minimum wage being mm-hmm. uh, about a buck fifty uh, over there. And I've got two amazing VAs from the Philippines, uh, Jan and Jonalyn, who do just a bang-up job for me. And they go in and do um, a lot of the repetitive sort of data entry and data sorting type tasks that um, we could do, but I want my, you know, my uh, office uh, gals doing things that are more, um, that only they can do, so to speak. Right. So all in all, put all together, what are you spending per month? Probably between 10 and 20. So not very much. No, not very much. No, my my old overhead was about 80 or 90 a month. So you had all the apartments. Yes. Yeah, it was huge. So what I like about this model that I have now is my overhead's so low. um, You know, we just make sure that uh, most of it's just employees. I mean, the employee cost, we don't really spend a ton on marketing or anything like that. So um, most of what we're doing is like word of mouth and, um, you know, just posting in groups. And so. So you have a very unique business model. What's going to happen to you? If you if the market takes a dip, um, I actually think we would see a surge if the market took a dip. I think we'd do better if it took a dip because I would have the pick of the litter on loans because yeah. no one would be able to get funding. Um, the other thing too is because I'm loaning. This is why I do that two to one collateral spread mm-hmm. because if you know if the market tanks by fifty percent, I haven't lost money yet. Right. So I, the, the market can literally crash to, to half, like it did in '08 or you know sim- close to that. And I haven't lost a penny yet. So it's only when it gets lower than half. But remember, my loans are mostly a year or less. Yeah. So I have time to pivot and react. That means that any given time, you know, half of all of my holdings are coming boomeranging back to me in six months or less. So by the time that happens, I mean, I don't think it would happen overnight. And if it did, I think I'd have some time to react and pivot. So, yeah. So your systems and processes have been dialed in. Yep. And you're living the good life. You're doing the private, good life. You're doing private lending. That's yep. 12 months. No payments. So you're, there's no stress. You're not even having to do collections. Nope. Every once in a while, you might have to foreclose. That's about it. Once in a blue moon. What do you do with all your free time? Yeah. So I read a ton. Um, I love reading. Uh, I actually I love listening and watching. You know, podcasts and all. Yeah. I just want to soak up as much knowledge. I feel like the more that I progress in my career, the more I realize I don't know. And I just want to absorb like an, just an amoeba, just absorbing knowledge every, everywhere I can. So, yeah. so, and what is your, what is your why? Yeah. I mean, I think it's that I have some big shoes to fill. I would say that's, if that's, if that's a why, if that's a, a reason or a purpose to keep driving on, um, you know, I look back in my family line and, you know, everybody has done something significant, you know, above me. And so I think about it and I'm like, well, you know, my parents were, you know, great growing up, really supportive, you know, encouraging me to, you know, be the best I could be. So I don't want to let people down. And also just personally, I'll know, you know, if I didn't live up to my potential, I just feel like, you know, I, I don't want to be a waste of potential. So yeah, unfulfilled potential. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I love that part where you don't feel like you want to be a waste of potential because I actually had someone in high school, well, high school teachers told me that she's like, Steve, you're a waste of potential. It's like, oh, wow. Okay, thank you. Wow, do you guys talk still? <laughs> yeah, still. No, we're wow. actually Facebook friends. No kidding. Uh, it was the push that I needed. Yeah. Uh, what is your biggest struggle right now? Uh, my biggest struggle is probably educating people on why they, uh, because I think there's, there's this thing called um, 
TINA. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody talk about it, but it's there is no alternative, T-I-N-A, TINA. And it's educating people on the fact that you don't just have to do flips or rentals or burr or any of these things. You can do other things and you can invest in debt. I mean, you can buy debt on places. And I think it's just re-educating people who aren't in the industry and just saying, look, like you guys should be looking at this as an asset class to, you know, diversify your portfolio with. Get some property debt that's in, you know, that's in, you know, a safe space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for me, it's just sourcing enough end buyers because I have so many loans coming my way. Yes, I have the ability to fund all the, you know, A plus plus ones, but there's some A's and A plus loans that, you know, people would be so smart to get. But I have to just tell these people no sometimes because I don't have the bandwidth to fund, you know, ten million dollars of loans a month. I mean yeah. I just can't do it. So So what are you doing to educate more people besides this podcast? Besides being on this podcast, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that uh the biggest thing is I've just tried to tell everybody that I can like, look, like when the when the economy does take a dump, you don't want all your stuff in, you know, volatile items. Like You don't want it all in stuff that could go less than zero. So I just try to tell as many people that I, that I can like, hey, look, like you should be in something a little bit more passive and a little bit more safe that almost acts like a bond, but it's backed by real estate. Mm-hmm. And that's debt. Right. And so um, I, I would say like that ties in with my biggest struggle is just how do I source the that part of the community to come in and say, hey, let's look at this as an asset class mm-hmm. um, similar to what we do in real estate. You know why? I think it's too abstract. I think it's not sexy. It's not sexy. It's not sexy. I mean, no. it's kind of like on Instagram, you can show your cashier's checks. Yeah. You can show your watch, your car, yeah. but no one shows like, here's a rental deposit I got today. Yeah. No one shows that. Yeah. And they don't, yeah. and, and they don't, they're not going to say, oh, hey, here's me getting paid back on a loan. Like yeah. <laughs> nobody cares, you know? But so. even like if you were to have a note, right? Right. Like, not your style where it's no payments, but right. even if you were having a regular note and you're collecting monthly payments, like, right. okay, hey guys, I got a check today for 600 bucks. Like no right. one cares. No one cares. Yeah, yeah. No one cares. And so I think uh, it being a little less sexy of an investment, it makes the barrier to entry so much more and it puts a lot more pressure on me to be a good educator about mm-hmm. it in the space. And of course, I'm like a matchmaker for these things, which is nice. So I can say, hey, um, you know, somebody comes to me and says, hey, I, I'd really like to get into this and I want to, you know, I want to invest in debt. And I say, okay, do you want to reinvent the wheel or do you just want to pick up some, some of the $10 million a month in loans that I have coming my way? You want to right. just throw a few your way and you can pay me a little fee for doing so. Yeah. So um, I think that uh, it's up to that person to decide. But I think for me, it's less about pushing, you know, having, you know, investing in the loans that I do and more about let's get people interested in the space as a whole. And I'm sure some of those people will think of me when they do want to do that. Right. So, uh, and then how do you stay motivated when you're facing adversity? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say it comes back to the wasted potential thing. I just, in, I'm not going to lie. Some days I just, I just screw around you know? <laughs> because well, like, I mean, you, you have to, you're in a good spot. Yeah. I mean, but there's, what's nice about that is that by clearing my head certain days, I can come back and be really sharp when I need to be. So, yeah. um, I'm not necessarily a workaholic from five in the morning until, you know, 12 in, in the evening, but the times that I am working, I'm doing a lot of good, you know, sharp stuff that needs to happen. And my employees, you know, they lift a lot of the burden for me. So I've got great employees. I can't say enough about them. So got it. Um, and on Instagram, um, time, I'm going to guess is his name. Uh, what if you were 18 years old and you had 10,000 to your name? What would Blake do? That's a great question. 
um, knowing what I know now in this specific economy, I would actually look at buying some mortgage, uh, you know, mortgage uh, uh, securities or get some kind of debt on a property where it's super safe. But I would also keep a lot of, because if all you have is 10 grand, right, you need some some uh, emergency money. So I would honestly keep half of that in cash just for a what if scenario. The other thing I would do, that's for investing that money, right? But with $10,000, the idea that you can just live off of a $10,000 seed, I don't think so. I think mm. you need a high income skill at some point, or you need to figure out how to obtain monthly income. So yeah, the 10,000 is great. Put 5,000 of it into something that's making money, keep the other 5,000 in case of emergencies, and maybe try to grow both of those amounts over time. But uh, as an 18 year old, I think you need to learn a ton. So um, that doesn't necessarily mean paying $40,000 for, uh, you know, a, a course every weekend. But, you know, you can learn a lot by going to the library and just checking out some books and, you know, and, and, and just trying to educate yourself, surround yourself with people that know what they're talking about, mm-hmm. um, absorb information. And, you know, as you go along, I mean, just watch people that are doing what you want to do, you know, yeah. and watch and watch the Real Estate Disruptors podcast, too. So appreciate that. Yeah, of course. So they're going to the library. Picking up some books. What books do you recommend to the library? Um, first thing I would probably look at is basics on a few different topics. So basics about LLCs, you know, uh, basics on real estate law, basics on uh, bookkeeping, accounting for dummies, you know, any of those basic books that are going to give you just kind of a bird's eye on that topic. Anything you could imagine yourself having to deal with in real estate, basics on social media marketing. They've got good books on there for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you guys are great at that. Uh, Much better than me, by the way. Um, I need to uh, brush up in that area. But, you know, I would just get kind of an overview of everything. And there's so much wealth of information that can be found in uh, in those type of books. Actually, this is kind of nerdy, but I love to go to garage sales. And I have found some amazing books, hardcover books, and I do like to read those mm-hmm. too, for like, you know, less than a dollar. And some of the books that were made pre-internet are so good because yeah. they had to be because you couldn't, you know, you weren't able to publish an article easily. It was hard. Yeah. And so your book had to be amazing. So I go back sometimes and I'll find, um, I found this like raising capital book from like pre-internet. Mm-hmm. And I found some really good nuggets in there. I, of course, I won't remember them for this interview, but yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going through a book right now. I'm, I'm like two thirds through. It's a book. It's a, how I raised myself from failure to success through selling. Right. It was, and the guys talks about like, you know, he was celebrating on a day if he had a hundred dollar sale. Yeah. So you can see he's really dating himself. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, he started uh, his business or his career in sales in the 1920s. Wow. Right. But I'm listening to the book like, wow, there's so many great principles here. I wish I picked this book up when I first started real estate, but I didn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, that book was, so I was looking at it like, okay, I mean, the guy is celebrating hundred dollar sales. When was this book published? It was published in 1950. And they, people discount those books because yeah. they say, oh, they're too old. But I, you know, I just go back to it and like, these are grind lessons that these guys didn't have the luxuries of some of the easy internet, social media they stuff. Have we have today. Yeah. 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 No, so that, that was, I, I've been blown away by that book. Um, and then let's see. Uh, Larry's asking, what are some ideas of good debt? I don't really understand that question. Ideas of good debt, mm-hmm. like good debt versus bad debt. So like bad debt in my mind is a house is assessed at a hundred thousand and I'm loaning a hundred thousand. Like that's bad debt because if things go wrong, I'm up a Creek. If I have to do a foreclosure, what am I making? Am I, am I, I going to benefit from, you know, the, no, I'm going to go negative. Right. So I might wind up worse than where I started. So especially if the economy crashes, then you're, <laughs> then you're toast. So you're, ups, you're upside down. Yeah. Not the borrower. Exactly. Uh, so Kenny Lewis wants to know what's the minimum loan amount that you would do on a house? I do really small loans. 
I, I go down like into the, like the 10,000 range. I mean, well, I mean, yeah. with your business model, yeah. right? Like you don't have uh, employees for brokering or right. underwriting or right. you just look at it yourself. Yeah. And you know what we do for appraisals? You're going to laugh. I actually have people just put me on Facebook, like Facebook video, you know, video call, whatever you call it, FaceTime. That's terrible. I sound like an old head. Um, but anyways, you basically, I just have them walk through uh, the house. With that's me. your underwriting. Yeah, that's my underwriting. Yeah, that's it. So <laughs> instead of charging these poor people an appraisal fee, let's just go on video chat. If you can't, you know, if, if I'm not satisfied with, you know, the, the video, maybe I'll go out there myself. I went to uh, check out a house in Wisconsin. I just went there. You know what I mean? I just personally went there. I was like, I want to see this. I just wanted to meet the person and check yeah. out the, 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 the property. I'm not going to do that with most deals, but right. you know, that's funny. Uh, what is your superpower? Um, I would say probably like empathy, like being able to understand somebody that's in a, in a, in a spot, right. Um, trying to recognize what they're going through. And then that will sometimes motivate me to get really creative on deal structure to make something work that couldn't, that I wouldn't have maybe thought of mm -hmm. uh, another way. I'm trying to think of a good example of that because I feel like I just did one like that. But of course I won't remember it for this interview. So. Yeah. Well, but the great thing is because of your experience, you can do all the creative deal making. Right. Yeah. What's the greatest lesson you've learned? Um, don't use the numbers that are on paper as your, as your golden standard. I mean, don't go off of pro forma. Just understand there's going to be rookie mistake. Yeah, there's going to be an element of chaos in yeah. if you're doing real estate. So, and what's the favorite, best, or most interesting failure? My most interesting failure. Um, it was probably one of the early uh, flips that I did. I had a contractor and I wasn't watching him because I was busy doing other things, and he just botched this house more than I've ever seen a house botched. I had to redo everything in this house. It was so sad. And um, I, I made like negative 5,000 on the flip. So what, what did he botch? Um, he got this beautiful, real hardwood floor and mm -hmm. then installed it wrong. So it all had to be torn out, which was <laughs> really sad. Um, he did these plaster walls, which he did them wrong somehow. I don't know how you do that wrong, but he did it wrong. Um, I, I kind of just, he's like, oh, you know, let me go get this carpet. So he goes and buys all this carpet, puts it in. And of course I wasn't, you know, paying attention because this was like 2016. I had so much going on and uh, he puts in, I, I've never seen such ugly carpet in my life. And it literally ruined the house sale. I mean, he put like this turquoise, like something out of the little mermaid he put in the house. I was like, what are you doing, man? He probably got it on a discount roll somewhere. So, I mean, he made his money. Oh, he did. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I still paid him, but oh, it was terrible. All right, so I want you to think about what you want to leave the listeners with while I make a couple of quick announcements. All right. Guys, if you get value today, please like, subscribe, share, comment. It helps the algorithm, which in turn helps us reach more people. Uh, and then we do have our all-day sales training on September 24th. Check it out, disruptors.com slash sales training. And we got Mark Stuber coming out next week. You may not recognize the name. He's Cody Hoffine's business partner, uh, and they're going to be talking about their business in Salt Lake. Um, so... What are some last thoughts you want to leave the listeners Only with? deal with honest people. So if you feel like you have to put somebody in a contract or if you feel like, um, you know, somebody could be shady, don't deal with that person ever. Just cut the loss, cut the tie early. Don't make bad hires. Don't hire bad employees. You know, cut the, the those types of things. So to make sure that people you surround yourself are, uh, with are genuine and honest. How do you do that? Um, I guess some of it's gut feel. Um, some of it is, you know, maybe give them a small uh, opportunity to show who you know what their true character is i don't know how you do that but i try to do it whenever I mean, you just possible. go in your gut i go with my gut nine nine nine, nine times out of ten so yeah and that's funny right because like we tend to like try to ignore our gut or try to justify yeah every time i've done that i've gotten spanked yeah our so, gut is yep. really accurate yeah it is for whatever reason yeah yeah 
And if someone wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? They could just go to selbyrentals.com. That's the uh, uh, website that's on my hat. Everybody misspells my name. It's S-E-L-B-Y. Everyone wants to say Shelby like the car, but it's really? selbyrentals.com. Uh, on there, you're going to find uh, a way to get a hold of me. So. All right, perfect. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely, This Steve. was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Thank you guys for watching. See you all next week.